I'm Dr. Walter Malone Jr., founder of WM Ministries. I want to thank you for joining me for this segment of Tailored to Win, that I might share with you some insights that can inspire, inform, and empower your life. I want to bring to your attention a passage that we looked at before. I'm going to actually focus on, focus on verse 33. Verse 33 is going to be the focus, but it might do me well to read verse 25 through 33 in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Now, we have looked at Luke chapter 14, verse 26 through 32 before. In fact, we looked at it not long ago, but I want us to focus on verse 33, but I'll read it all uh, so that verse 33 will uh, make sense to you in a few minutes. In Luke's uh, Gospel, chapter 14, verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his, mother, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, least after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And I put in the spotlight on verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, we, we are teaching at this particular time this year with and focus on kingdom discipleship. Kingdom discipleship. And the question is, what does it mean to be a kingdom disciple? You understand that the word disciple comes from the Greek word mathetes, which means to be a learner and a follower of another. And we continue to keep before us in a very sincere and serious way that it is not enough for us to be members of the church. We must be disciples of Christ. And to be a disciple of Christ is critical for one to understand who Jesus is and then what are the implications of following him, what are the implications of being identified with him. And I am finding more and more in the times in which we live that if ever there was a time for us to have clarity about who we are as Christians, the time is now. 
And I'm going to say something to you, and you may call it prophetic, and I'm not really speaking prophetic as I'm just saying, if you read the Bible, study the Bible, and understand who Jesus is, just spiritual common sense will show you some things. And I'm telling you that as time keeps moving forward, uh, unless Jesus comes soon, you're going to find yourself in a world where the church is going to be challenged like never before in terms of her position about Jesus. And so this whole matter of kingdom discipleship is of the utmost importance for our lives. We need to understand what commitment to Christ is all about. Jesus in Luke's gospel here says in verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is that line in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew's gospel, if any man would be my disciple, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. God is not interested in us just being members of the church. God is interested in us being disciples of Christ. And a true disciple of Christ will belong to the church because God has not saved us to be solo saints. But the question about discipleship is the question of how is this covenant relationship between God and myself and between myself and other saints, how is that being manifested in my life? Even in this time in which we live, in, in the still the thralls and make, making our way out of this pandemic, and with all of the virtual and technological astuity that we have, it does not give us the right to become spiritually lazy and stay home and use the pandemic and COVID as an excuse to be home on Sundays drinking coffees, eating scrambled eggs and toast, and then saying I'm worshiping as I'm watching from home. Uh, we got to be careful that we don't curse what God's trying to do to bless. And uh, if we can go everywhere else to the movie theaters and, and the grocery stores and the malls and everywhere else, then why is it that we become so scary on Sunday morning or on Wednesday? And I'm not on some loose tangent trying to make somebody feel guilty. What I'm trying to bring before us, at some point, we have to deal with the issue of authenticity. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives these two parables. One parable has to do with the building and the other has to do with a battle. Jesus says, the person who is building a tower and then doesn't count the cost, 
says that he ends up with the possibility of not being able to finish what he was to build. And then he becomes ridiculed by others. Then he gives a second parable and says it has to do with the battle. What king is going to go to war with 10,000 soldiers against an army of 20-something thousand soldiers and then end up losing the battle because he didn't have adequate soldiers to win the war in the first place. And he didn't consider the fact that he was not prepared and he was undemanded before he got in the war. And so he suffers ruin. In one parable, it's a building and you suffer ridicule. In the other parable, it's a battle and you suffer ruin. I don't want to be the kind of Christian that God gives me an assignment and I don't complete what he entrusted to me because I didn't count the cost. I don't want to be the kind of church person where I'm losing a battle to the demonic, where Satan's going to have victory over my life because I didn't take spiritual warfare serious. And so I didn't go into the battle properly prepared because the outcome's going to be greater than ridicule. It's going to be ruin. Jesus says that if you follow him, you got to consider, you got to count the cost. Brothers and sisters, salvation is free. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, the gift of God, the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life. You can't pay for it, you can't earn it. All you can do is receive it. It's a gift given to us by grace, the unmerited favor of God. You get what you didn't deserve. It's a gift. But while salvation is free, it costs to follow Jesus. And so in verse 33 then, this is the focus verse. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now I don't think Jesus ever said anything that he didn't mean. And I don't think he ever said anything that he couldn't back up. And so if he said it, we ought to listen. And if he said it, we ought to take it to heart. He said, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And I have been teaching now for several weeks under one particular type of focus, and that is that there are some marks, if you please, there are some characteristic traits that would let us know concerning the authenticity of our discipleship. If I say that I'm a disciple of Christ, if I say that I'm a follower of Jesus, is there anything that I can point to? Is there anything I can put my hands on? Is there anything that can come to my mind, my heart, my spirit that says to me, Walter, yes, there is some credibility when you say that you are a disciple of Christ. If these things show up in your life, 
it would suggest that you're following Jesus. Today is going to be the sixth characteristic that I'm going to share with you about these marks of following Jesus. And this sixth mark is that if I'm a disciple of Christ, I am willing to practice biblical stewardship wherein I acknowledge that God owns everything I have, including me. I know I'm a disciple of Christ when I'm willing to practice biblical stewardship, acknowledging that God owns everything, including me. Because if I operate from the premise that there's nothing that I have that I own, that I'm just simply using what belongs to somebody else, and I don't even own myself because God owns me both by creation and by redemption, then that means there's nothing that I got that I'm not willing to let go of when it comes to Jesus. And the reason I ain't got no problem letting go of it because it ain't mine to begin with. Now I could just sit down right now and give the benediction. <laughs> But I ain't going to do it. One, because you'd pass out. Stewardship, uh, properly managing. That's what stewardship is. I'm, I'm managing. I'm a caretaker. I'm handling something that belongs to somebody else. And God has an expectation of our lives when it comes to stewardship because you cannot have a relationship with God and not accept the responsibility that comes with the relationship. Let me say it again. You cannot have a relationship with God and not accept the responsibility that comes with the relationship. And so when I think about it, when I talk about stewardship, Christian stewardship, then it, it underscores the fact that God has a purpose for my life that he wants to work out for me, with me, and through me. That, that stewardship implies that there is a purpose. There is an assignment. There is a mission. There is a cause that God says, I want to use you to implement into the world. Therefore, I'm going to give you gifts, talents, and abilities. I'm going to give you resources. And I want you to manage all of it in such a way that it will be for your good but for my glory. So if you, if you turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, 
And beginning with verse 3, the Apostle Paul tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You and I are unquestionably blessed people. And your blessing is not limited by any means to a house, a car, clothes, and money. God has given you things that are far more valuable than that. And it came from the heavenly or spiritual realm. Verse 4, he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Just lay hands on yourself and tell yourself, I've been chosen. Yeah, I've been chosen. When did God choose you? Before you were born. Don't that blow your mind? That God chose you before you were born. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. Now verses 3 through verse 6 in Ephesians chapter 1 could be summarized by one word, election. Everyone shout election. This is the doctrine of election and the doctrine of election is a disturbing theological idea for many people. Because many people, when it comes to the doctrine of election, they deal with it in a very parochial way to talk about some people were uh, elected or chosen to be saved while others were chosen not to be saved. And uh, in Romans, Paul talks about the fact that God says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. In, it is in Romans that Paul talks about this tree and that we were not a part of the tree, but we have been grafted, as it were, onto the tree. It was Israel that God chose to be his chosen people. You and I are not Jewish, we are Gentiles, so we were not a part of the tree. Therefore, we have been grafted onto the tree. And God adopted us. All of this is language that's dealing with the struggling idea of election. Election deals with the tension, if you please, between the sovereignty of God and the free will of mankind. God created us with a free volitional will. He gave us the power to choose. In the Bible, God says, I set before you life and death, choose. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the condemnation that man chooses darkness rather than light. God doesn't send anybody to hell. It's a choice we make. 
And yet, Paul talks about those who were chosen before the foundation of the world. Paul says we were predestined to be a part of the beloved of God. But the doctrine of election, and I'm quoting now Ken Hemphill, the doctrine of election does not speak primarily about our position in heaven as it does our purpose in time. So if I've been chosen by God, if, I, if, 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 if God has a purpose for my life, a aim for my life, an assignment for my life, a vision for my life, and he has given me resources to fulfill that purpose, then it is incumbent upon me to be a good steward of what God has given me. In Ephesians, again, chapter 2, if you look at verse uh, eight and following for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works least anyone should boast and verse 10 is such a powerful verse for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and when Paul says that we are his workmanship, Paul is acknowledging that there's something unique about each and every one of us, that each one of us uh, constitutes a spiritual Picasso, that we are a unique piece of art. That's why you ought not try to be anything than an original you. Don't spend all your time trying to be like somebody else because an authentic, Authentic you is better than a copy of somebody else any day of the week. Thank God for what you have. Thank God for the purpose and the calling that he has upon your life. And then if you look again in Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And if God calls us and then we're admonished to walk worthy of the call, that means again that we can ill afford to take lightly the stewardship responsibility, the stewardship obligation that God has placed upon our lives. Jesus says, if you're not willing to forsake all, you cannot be my disciple. I don't have no problem letting go anything I got when I know that what I got was not mine to begin with. I mean, it is as fundamental as the fact that this day right now that you, are, you and I are living in is a gift from God. Now, we get up every morning with the arrogance that we were supposed to get up. But if you open up your eyes and you breathe, you ought to give God some glory. Because every day you wake up is a gift from God. That's why the psalmist says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So stewardship means that God possesses, God owns 
everything I have, including me. I'm just managing what he has given to me out of responsible stewardship. Now, as we look at this then, how shall we look at this stewardship? How shall we look at what God has given us? Well, we could talk about it from three perspectives. Let's talk about it from the stewardship of ourselves. Let's talk about it from the stewardship of earthly possessions. And then let's talk about it from the perspective of the stewardship of the gospel. But let's look at it first in terms of the stewardship of ourselves. If you'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to begin with verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, Paul says that as Christians, our lives are occupied by the Holy Spirit. God has made himself known to us through three distinct personalities, has he not? The word Trinity, you will not find it in the Bible, but the doctrine of the Trinity runs throughout the Bible. Genesis 1.26, God has a rhetorical conversation with himself and says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So God has made himself known to us as Father. He sought us and we would not seek him. God has made himself known to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the remission of our sins. And then God has made himself known to us as Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I've got to go, but if I go, I will not leave you like an orphan. I will not leave you comfortless, but I will send the parakletos. I will send the comforter. I will send the one who will stand by your side and he will lead you into all truth and he will abide in you forever. So now God has made himself known to us as Holy Spirit. And when we come into a saving relationship with God and we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, then the Spirit of the living God comes to live in us. God sets up house in us. He does not treat us like a hotel. He doesn't come by for a couple of days and then check out. No, he, he lets our lives be his residence his house, his home. He comes to live in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, take note of the fact that God lives in you. And since God lives in you, then Paul says that you ought to take note of how you treat your body you ought to take note how you handle this temple because the Spirit of God lives in you for you were bought at a price. You are not your own. So I said earlier that God owns us by creation. We did not create God. God created us. And then God owns us by redemption. Everyone who has professed hope in Christ, we are saved because of the finished work of, of Christ on the cross. 
We are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. How are you and I treating ourselves? Have we ever thought about self-care? Do you get proper rest? Or do you just go, 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 go and never call time out? Don't look at me, Sister Malone. How do <laughs> How do you treat yourself? Do you eat the right things? Are you eating all the bacon you can swallow? All the red meat that it takes days to digest in your system? How many slices of pizza? <laughs> How many cocktails do you drink? How many, <laughs> How many glasses of wine? Uh, you consume it. <laughs> Somebody said, Pastor, please move to the next point. <laughs> How much, well, before I even go to that, it's interesting, is it not, in Genesis chapter 1, that before sin enters into the world, it seems to me that it's very clear that man was a vegetarian because there was no killing of any animals until after sin. I've got a book in my library entitled, What Jesus Would Eat. How, how, how much exercise do we get? If it's nothing more than walking 30 minutes in the mall or through the neighborhood, how, how, how much time do we spend, not just in terms of sleep, but still time, getting still, quiet time, relaxing? There's something to be said about self-care. In one of the churches I used to pastor, um, one of the older members saw me one day in the parking lot of the church. And she said, Pastor, she says, how you doing? And she was an elderly woman, elderly woman. And I said, I, I am tired. I said, I need to get some rest. And she said, Pastor, she said, you're the pastor, right? 
I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, you, you tired? I said, yeah. You, you said you need to get some rest? I said, yeah. She said, you, you, you the pastor, ain't you? <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am. She says, who are you waiting on to tell you that you can go get some rest? She said, you the pastor, ain't you? <laughs> then finally she said, pastor, she said, if you don't take care of yourself, she said, nobody else will. And so we could begin with the stewardship of ourselves. Then we could talk about the stewardship of our possessions. In, in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, you know, there is this story about the man who had a good crop season, and uh, he had such a good crop season that he says, I'm going to pull down my barns, and I'm going to build even greater barns. That's in Luke chapter 12. You read this in verses 13 through 21. And he says, I'm going to pull down my bonds and build greater bonds. And there I will bestow all of my crops. Uh, he didn't consider the fact that he could have given crops to others. And he didn't need to build a bigger bond. And in the midst of this, he has a conversation with himself. And he says, and I will say to my soul, so you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Yeah, this is the only place I know where God calls a man a fool. The man's talking about, I've got many goods laid up for many years. He's going to take his ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, tonight, your soul is going to be required of you. I told you all ago, every day you wake up, it is only by the grace of God. And you may not believe this, but just check it out for yourself. The next time you go to a funeral, um, just go on to the cemetery with the family of the loved one who passed and see for yourself that if there's behind that hearse a U-Haul that's taking their possessions and that what they felt like they owned went with them. Somebody asked John D. Rockefeller's accountant, how much did he leave? And his accountant said, he left it all. You don't take none with you. You don't take none with you. And it's foolish to live our lives not being a good steward of what the Lord has given to us. We have to be good managers of what God has allowed us to use while the blood is still running warm in our veins. In Proverbs chapter 18, and I, I, I love the Bible, and I thank God for Proverbs because it's a book of wisdom. I need to do some particular teaching from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16 says, A man's gift 
makes room for him and brings him before great men. Did you hear that? Your gift will make room for you. Well, where did your gift come from? It came from God and will bring you before great men. That's why you all not see yourself as mediocre, nor should you see yourself as limited. Because God can give you gifts that will make room for you. You ain't got to lie, cheat, scheme, steal to go forward in life. Just know what your gift is and operate in it. And then I also like uh, in Proverbs uh, in chapter 19, verse 21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Another translation says, the plans of a man are many, but it's the Lord's plan that prevails. And then in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, uh, if you look at Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your bonds will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. If you give God the first fruits of what he gives to you, you'll see that God can bless you to live in overflow, to live in abundance. So often church people will begin to praise God or say, God did this for me, God did that for me. But when it comes to what they do for God, they come up short. It's all about what God's gonna do for me and not about what I'm gonna do for him. But if you practice the principles of the word of God, and you give him the first fruit, you'll find out that God's got more to put in your hand than you have to put in his. I'm talking about how you manage the possessions that God gives you. We said there's a stewardship of self and there's a stewardship of our possessions. But then I really love this little story in Proverbs chapter six, beginning with verse six. Go to the ant, you sluggard, Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Look at somebody and say, don't be lazy. Yeah, the sluggard is the lazy person. The sluggard is the person who's wasting their gifts, wasting their time, wasting their talents. Poverty is gonna come upon you like a prowler. Yeah, and your need like an armed man. The writer of Proverbs says, look at the ant. Sluggard, lazy man, lazy woman, look at the ant. Learn from the ant. Summer is about here, isn't it? 
when you go home, go in the backyard, find some ants. Find an ant hive. Get your chair, sit down, and watch the ant. They ain't got no captain. They don't have an overseer. They don't have a ruler telling them to go to work, get up in the morning, go to work, get some rest, come in the evening, go back to work. No, nobody's giving them instructions. But those ants, they just working all summer. You eating, dropping bread crumbs and this, that, and the other. The ants picking it up. Other ants taking it. Ants down in the, in the ant cave, putting it in the refrigerator, putting it on shelves, getting some straw, getting this. Get, they're just working all summer. All summer, those ants just working. When the winter time comes, the ant cuts on some jazz, <laughs> kicks back. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Oh, you brought me from a mighty a mighty long ways. That's what the ant's doing. He's just kicked back, just chilling. Pass me no one of them Doritos. <laughs> Give me a piece of that little ham that you had. Don't you? Yeah. You ain't never seen an ant starving. You don't see no ant struggling. Because they ain't lazy. They utilize their time. They utilize their resources. The bread of Proverbs says, take some lessons from the ant. But then finally, let me show you one more. We got to be stewards, right, of our bodies. And we got to be stewards of our resources. And then, we can be stewards of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. When he says, so let a man consider us as servants of Christ, who is Paul talking about? Who is he referring to? Is he just talking about preachers? Or is he talking about Christians in general? How do you see yourself? How do I see myself? Do we see ourselves as servants of Christ? Servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. That's the responsibility of the church, to be stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Nobody discovers God. God has to reveal himself to us. So you cannot talk about God without talking about that which is mysterious. In Ephesians, Paul says that God is using the church to unveil his mysteries to the world, even to principalities and powers. That means that the church's responsibility is to be so responsible with this Bible, with the gospel, that even the demonic Satan and his kingdom is being shown the fulfillment of God's kingdom and why he has lost because of the stewardship of the church. The world is to come to Christ. Are you listening to me? The world is to come to Christ through us being good stewards, us, not just me, us, being good stewards of the mysteries of God. And that's why it's such a blessing for you to be at Bible study. Because every time you come to Bible study, you are allowing God to give you spiritual insight and spiritual understanding about this word and how to understand the word, how to interpret the word, the meaning of the word, and what to be able to share with people in a world draped in darkness. That's our responsibility. And what I'm noticing more and more is how people in the world are struggling between culture and Christ. Christ is, in, in the words of Ryan Hole Neighbor, the theologian, Christ is in culture, but he's above culture. The word became incarnate, came and tabernacled among us. But he's above culture. Jesus came into the world to make it possible that mankind could be saved, crucified, buried, and resurrected. He has ascended back to glory. He's got a name that's above every name. And one day every knee's gonna bow and every tongue's gonna confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. And the church is in the world, but we cannot become a part of the world. We cannot lose sight of this book, the Bible, lest we become overtaken by the spirit of the age. And now, I've never seen a time in my life where it was more pervasive than what it is right now. And many Church people, Christian people are struggling because they, they don't know what side to stand on. They don't know anything about Christian apologetics, defending the faith that was once given to the elders. They can't take a position on anything because they don't know where they stand themselves. And it's not unusual for someone to 
Ask me a question, and I'm, I'm not just talking about people in our congregation, people outside of our congregation. Dr. Malone, I just want to get your thoughts on this issue. It could be the issue of the gay community, where do I stand on that? It could be an issue about racism. It can be an issue about poverty, abject poverty in the face of opulent wealth. Many, many issues. And as a minister, as a preacher, as a pastor, as a Christian, you know, I'm, I'm asking the question, what does God have to say about it? And what revelation do we, do we receive from the word of God? The Bible is not just an ordinary book wherein we read it like we're reading a novel or reading some other book where someone else gave their opinion. The Bible is the word of God. God inspired. God's will is in this word. And I ain't trying to add to it and I'm not trying to take away from it. I seek to understand the illumination of that word and then to stand on that word and seek to represent God to the best of my ability. And we've been called upon to be stewards of this mystery. God gave us the flashlight to cast some light in a dark world. And maybe the problem of the church is either we done lost the flashlight or we done lost the light in the flashlight. And I'm telling you, I think I said this a few minutes ago, unless the Lord comes back soon, I think that we're headed for times that are going to be some of the most challenging times that the church has ever seen. Because more and more people are questioning this book. And the church, I fear, I fear has become so lackadaisical about this book that many church people simply attend church but don't know where they stand when it comes to Christ and his word. And I'm not talking about the arrogance of religion. I'm not talking about the arrogance of religion. I'm talking about a church being true to the true and living God and knowing how to stand with integrity on the principles and the values of God's word and being able to say, for God I'll live and for God I'll die. Standing true to Jesus, Lord, I'll go with you all the way, even if it means going to the cross where you lead me, I'll follow you. We have to be stewards of the mysteries of God, stewards of ourselves, stewards of our possessions, and stewards of the gospel. Amen. Thank you for sharing with us today for this segment of Tailored to Win. I pray that this word has brought encouragement and empowerment to equip you to live a faithful and fruitful life 
to the glory of Jesus Christ.